0: I'm Josh Porter, and this is the City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part 84 and the final entry in the series, The Gospel of Matthew. Matthew's gospel concludes with marching orders for disciples of Jesus then and now. Probably most of us feel as if we're anything but qualified or prepared to carry this mission forward, but maybe we're in good company. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28, I looked it up this week, on February 12th, 2017, Van City Church embarked on an in-depth, line-by-line, word-by-word, really, study of a first-century biography of Jesus that now we call the Gospel of Matthew. And get this, Van City Church, tonight we will conclude that study. Yeah, how about that? Cam just mentioned that we've been a church for five years, which means that four of those years we have spent in Matthew. Four years seems like a long time to be in and out of one book of the Bible. We've talked about other things, but be in and out of one book of the Bible. But we didn't pick this for no good reason. Around that same time in 2017, early 2017, we had decided to re-architect our young church around the idea of practicing the way of Jesus. So we began teaching and practicing spiritual disciplines and principles of emotional health in our, what we have as small groups, we call them Van City Communities. And we wanted to do that work concurrently with constant attention to the teachings and lifestyle of Jesus. So the idea would be that you're reading about Jesus fasting one week, And before you know it, we were actually learning how to fast together in our communities. Jesus praying, us learning to pray. Jesus in silence and solitude, us giving it a shot. You get the idea. It's weird ending a four-year study of Matthew. I wasn't sure how this last teaching would go, but when I sat down in my office this past week to study, I found Matthew's conclusion wonderfully appropriate for our time and place, even really for our season as a church. I guess I shouldn't be surprised at this point. Now, where we last left Jesus in the story, he had died. He had been buried, but when two women came to visit his grave, they found it empty before meeting Jesus himself alive and well. Jesus sends these women to inform the rest of his grieving friends that he was dead, but now he is alive again. Now, let's read the conclusion to Matthew's biography of Jesus. You guys all right? You with me? Yep. Great. Tyson, you still fine back there? (laughs) That was pretty good. Uh, Matthew chapter 28, beginning with verse 11. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. Now, at this point, Matthew is not finished with conflict in the story. Just as Matthew, the author, has unveiled this glorious penultimate climax to not just the biography of Jesus, but of human history, just as Jesus has given two of his faithful disciples a mission of good news, at that same time, the enemies of the Jesus movement launch their countermission. Now, remember in the story, the Jewish religious leaders had arranged guards to watch over Jesus' tomb and prevent his body from being stolen. Not because of any respect for Jesus' dead body, but because they remembered that Jesus went around saying that he was going to come back to life. And they figure, well, hey, if you want to get a rumor going that a dead guy has come back to life, item number one on your to-do list would probably be remove the body. Otherwise, anyone could just go point to the thing and say, nope, he's still dead. He's right there. So the guards are there in the story, though off screen, so to speak, when the stone rolls away and when the once dead Jesus gets up and walks away. And now they are reporting to the chief priests about everything that they saw. Scholars believe that this is the moment when a cryptic promise from Jesus is being fulfilled. This happened all the way back in chapter 12. The, uh, the, this point in the story when it, we read that some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to Jesus, "'Teacher, we want to see a sign from you.' And Jesus answered, "'A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth.'" If it seems like we read that a long time ago, it's because we did. I looked it up. February of 2019. Point is, Jesus promised this, quote-unquote, wicked and adulterous generation, referring to Israel's corrupt religious establishment, that they would be given a sign of his death and burial and resurrection. And the priests, they promised that this would be enough to make them believe. Remember, during Jesus' execution, we read, in the same way the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. So that's twice now that Israel's religious leaders had promised belief in exchange for signs. And here, Jesus is delivering on both charges. Let's see how they respond. Verse 12. One more time in Matthew's Gospel, this has happened all across the entire story, but one more time in Matthew's Gospel, money is depicted as having potentially demonic power. The soldiers are willing to sit on this bizarre thing that they witnessed for a price, and the religious leaders are willing to similarly pay off the governor to keep the soldiers out of trouble. Money and deceit, power, the countermission. And it's funny because the alibi is pretty stupid you think about it. If the guards were sleeping, how would they know that Jesus' disciples came and took the body? At any rate, the message of the resurrection and the accusation of its fraudulence are going out at the same time. It's still the case now. Keep reading. Verse 16, "...then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go." Mountains, if you've noticed, figure prominently throughout not only Matthew's gospel, but really in Israel's, Israel's history throughout the scriptures, as, and we believe that Matthew was writing primarily to a Jewish audience. Ever since Moses met with God on Mount Sinai, mountains have been understood by God's people as this kind of sacred location for divine disclosure. So here, Matthew is depicting Jesus as the new and better Moses, so to speak. He's bringing God's revelation to Israel one more time. Verse 17, when they saw him, those 11 disciples who went, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Now this statement is incredible in two different ways. One, the first commandment is to worship Yahweh alone, to have no other gods before him. And here are 11 Jewish men steeped in this reality from birth and here they are worshiping Jesus of Nazareth as God. And what's also bizarre is that with Jesus there, this guy who had been dead and is now alive, some doubted. Matthew is brutally honest, even at the expense of his own reputation. We'll come back to that part in a bit. Verse 18, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, now pause for a moment because this is crucial. There is no longer any cryptic mystery clouding Jesus' claims about his own identity. There's no pretense, no reverse psychology, no clever teaching rhetoric. In his final statement, Jesus becomes magnificently candid about exactly who he is, God in the flesh. All authority in heaven and on earth, in all the universe, belongs to Jesus. He is the the authoritative king over the cosmos. Therefore, Jesus says, meaning because of this, he has marching orders. And the beauty of Jesus' claims of cosmic authority preceding the marching orders is twofold. First, when someone is in charge of everything, they have a right to issue commands. That's their place. What gives you the right to tell me what to do? Oh, all authority on heaven In heaven and on earth. But it's more than that. The second aspect of Jesus' therefore statement is more sentimental, more comforting for his disciples. This means that we won't be left to this mission alone. It is the mission of Jesus, who is king of the universe, that empowers his disciples. We didn't make it up, and we won't be left to our own devices to accomplish it. Why are we here? As in, why are we in this building tonight? Because Jesus told us to do this. In Jesus' mission, we follow Jesus as authoritative king. It is Jesus' mission. He will empower us to carry it out. And ultimately, it will be Jesus himself who fulfills it. We don't just have a connection with someone at the top. We are in intimate, personal relationship with the only one in complete authority over everything. And what's more than that, we are not just grunts, not just lesser thans, not just feeble servants. We are friends of Jesus, children of God himself, and we've been given a mission. The mission is this. Look at verse, or look at the rest of verse 19, rather. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. The English phrase "make disciples" comes from a single Greek word, Metotyuo, which is a verb that describes the process of learning in apprenticeship. It, it means "make disciples," or it means train other people in discipleship. I was reading scholars this week that pointed out how interesting it is that Jesus doesn't use some other kind of missionary word here. There are Greek words for concepts like evangelize or preach or convert or win over, but Jesus doesn't use them. The verb that Jesus chooses has what one scholar described as, quote, a slower, lower profile. That same scholar described it as a scholastic word, arguing that you could translate translate Jesus' commission as bring them to school which is incredible because most Christians are at least somewhat familiar with the Great Commission, the marching orders from Jesus. But when we hear go and make disciples, we instantly imagine conversion moments or missionaries overseas or revivals with sinners' prayers said by the dozens. And I'm sure I don't have to tell you, most of you anyway, about the damage done in the name of this kind of impersonal, kind of colonizing pseudo-evangelism. And yes, God still works powerfully in bad theology, but it doesn't excuse the damage done by people carrying it out. When the church has embarked on its unfeeling and theologically bankrupt soul-winning program, all kinds of bad things happen, everything from colonizing Christians to the embarrassment of the short-term mission movement. This is a great way to, at best, win converts who aren't actually disciples, or at worst, you hurt others and cause significant lasting damage. Really, all that's required for conversion or deconversion is an experience and some emotions, a one-off decision in a vacuum. But discipleship requires a lifetime of faithful training conversion campaigns and the popular deconstruction movement are both much, much easier than discipleship. Neither require a ton of thinking or follow through or discipline, just emotional reactionism. Some guy asked you to raise your hand and pray a prayer at church and presto, you're a Christian. And then later, you're mad at your dad or your childhood church that didn't like Harry Potter, and boom, you're deconstructing. The misinterpretation of Jesus' commission as a desperate machine hell-bent on souls saved from hell simplifies the work of the church to the point of unrecognizability. Jesus asked his disciples to do for others what he had done for them, which means he never sought out converts as a result of an emotional experience, he sought out apprentices. Go and make other apprentices. Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, which is also fascinating. For Jesus, baptism is not an optional symbol. It is a fundamental prerequisite for discipleship. And then, teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. That word everything is a deliberate and emphatic in the original language, as in teach them to obey absolutely everything I have said. And commanded is past tense. Doesn't mean that Jesus will not continue to speak to us by the Spirit, but it does mean that we have his teaching here in the Scriptures, and he will not contradict them. There will be no new teaching from Jesus to supplant the old. I have commanded you everything. Now go and teach people to do what I have commanded. So we carry on the teaching and practice of Jesus throughout the world. And of course, this presupposes that we actually share the story of Jesus. Or what, you know, in churchy circles we describe as sharing the gospel. The idea is pretty simple. You can't train someone to be a black belt if they've never heard of karate. I'm sure some of you have heard that. You know, we beat up on this all the time. The tweetable quote often attributed to St. Francis, you know, preach the gospel always and when necessary, use words. And we pick on it all the time, not just because St. Francis never said that, but also because it's dumb. Apparently, Jesus never got that memo as he was constantly preaching the kingdom of God with words, often only words. And I get the sentiment. I I understand what it means. It's to emphasize action over talk. But preaching the gospel requires words. Or, you know, you just try. Just try being friendly to someone who knows nothing about Jesus and see if they somehow intuit the entire Sermon on the Mount based on you being nice or leaving a good tip. It just doesn't work that way. Jesus' mission doesn't exclude what we call evangelism. It it just assumes evangelism into the much broader work of making disciples. Yes, train them to obey everything I've commanded. But to do so, you have to tell them the story of Jesus. Now, before we end our study of Matthew, there are a few things that I want us to consider as a church. First, let's just face this. The Great Commission is nobody's favorite part of Matthew, at least not modern Western Christians. Nobody except maybe Cam. And let's face it, something seems off about that guy I've been noticing over the last five years. Here's my big complaint. You want to hear my big complaint with Cam? I can't can't talk to him about movies anymore. His opinions never make any sense. For me, it all started back in 2011. Uh, If you're doing the math, that's a decade ago. So this has been happening for a long time. Now, to set the stage for you about my beef with Cam. Uh, before 20th Century Fox had been swallowed up by the ruthless, bloodthirsty juggernaut that is the Disney Corporation, it was up to Fox and Fox alone to make X-Men movies. You remember this, Tyson? You remember that? There was no Marvel Studios in the game when Fox bought the rights to these characters. So if you wanted Wolverine on the silver screen, you had to go to Fox. And let's be real, mostly what Fox did was make really bad X-Men movies. And I say this as a child of devotion to those comic books and as a film lover. Those things were mostly terrible. And I had, as a kid growing up, posters of Wolverine on my wall as a kid. You know, I'm grown up now, but as a kid. And I watched that Saturday morning cartoon religiously. I documented every episode on VHS so I could play it back at my own leisure. We read those comic books as kids, and we never dreamed... Big budgets and special effects might bring those characters to life at a theater near you. But then, in March of 1990, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was released in theaters everywhere, and then we thought everything, anything was possible. They're going to make movies of everything we love at this point. But X-Men didn't arrive until the year 2000, and it was great then in the year 2000. Really exciting stuff. It didn't hold up great over time. X2 is still pretty good if you want to revisit the filmography. But my God, Last Stand, Origins, Apocalypse, Dark Phoenix, New Music, these are really, really bad movies. So bad that when X-Men First Class came out around the summer of 2011, most of us had given up hope on this entire franchise. But we knew we were still going to go see it. It's a new X-Men movie. Of course, you're going to go see the thing. And to our absolute amazement, First Class was pretty darn good. Can you believe it? Not perfect, but it was pretty good. And we were all abuzz talking about, oh my gosh, there's a good X-Men movie? I can't believe that this happened. And I remember talking to Cam then. Here we go. I talked to Cam, and I was like, did you see this thing? And he was like, yeah. He scrunched up his nose, and he shook his head, and he poo-pooed it. And I said, oh, okay, he's going to have some legitimate nitpicks. Let me hear these. Why? Why? I asked, what's not to like? You know, young Magneto hunting Nazis, it was a really fun movie, what's not to like? And Cam's answer, I kid you not, was the, <laughs> the Cuban Missile Crisis, which features in this science fiction movie, the Cuban Missile Crisis didn't happen like that. <laughs> what? This is a movie about a magnet man who moves metal around with his will and he was worried about the Cuban Missile Crisis. I knew something was off then. Not a lot has changed. Anyway, (laughs) I've been waiting for five years for a good time to tell that story. So Kim, he loves the Great Commission without any convincing. But the rest of us, we, we need the convincing. Mostly, the Great Commission reminds us that the church has done some weird stuff, and that whatever it is that we should be doing, we're probably not doing it. And there's no way around it. Matthew ends with all followers of Jesus being sent out on a mission, while at the same time, countermission is being launched to stop them. And here's the weird thing about that. In his commentary on the passage, scholar Frederick Dale Bruner writes this: "There's no suggestion that the church should fear this countermission, or worse, fight it. Just note it. It cannot be said that Matthew shows any great concern about this counter-message or that he marshals any programs against it. He simply, perhaps even calmly, continues with his gospel message, seeming to trust that if it is heard, it will win enough disciples to counter the fraud of the counter-mission." This actually makes a lot of sense if you think back through the story. Jesus taught his followers to begin with nonviolence, enemy love. He told them all kinds of parables about weeds that will grow up in the wheat, saying, don't go around pulling up the weeds. That's not your job. Just let them grow. God will worry about that. And then at the end of uh, the, the climax of the story, when Jesus was being arrested, one of his friends drew out a sword to defend him, and Jesus rebuked him and said, don't do that. So contrary to nearly all of American evangelicalism, contrary to Fox News and the culture wars and the angry, fretful Southern Baptist of my upbringing, we are not to fear or even fight, in the traditional sense anyway, the effort against the gospel. We simply have our marching orders and that's that. Go and make disciples, baptize them, teach them to follow Jesus. If I had to guess, I'd wager that most of you feel the same kinds of things when I say that. Maybe you feel as if you're not even sure how to do that, or like things wouldn't go well if you tried. But if you read Acts and the subsequent letters of the New Testament, you'll quickly discover that the first Christians often didn't know how to do that either. And that though there are some incredible stories about this mission and its victories, the New Testament isn't worried about admitting that sometimes things went poorly. Or maybe you're thinking, my discipleship is, in, is such a mess right now that I can't even begin to consider the mission of Jesus. But remember, in this story, the last thing that these now commissioned disciples of Jesus have done is fail Jesus In spectacular fashion, denied even knowing him, ran away, weren't there for him, and now they're being sent out on the mission of God. Or maybe you're thinking that inside things are too chaotic, that you feel no peace, no confidence, or maybe you have your doubts about all this. But remember back in 17, we read that when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. The language here implies that amongst the 11 apostles, some of those worshiping him also doubted him. Again, this from Bruner. Theologically and spiritually, the report that even some of the disciples who worshiped Jesus also doubted is evangelical and profound. By reporting worship and doubt in the same sentence... Matthew tells his church that the structure of Christian faith and life is bipolar, or between two extremes. Disciples live their lives between worship and doubt. Christians are both believers and doubters, adoring and wondering, trusting and questioning. The good news of the Great Commission is that Jesus addresses and uses exactly such worshiping, doubting disciples— When Jesus here does not correct, exercise, or otherwise attack this doubt, but quietly overlooks it, almost as if it's normal, and gives the great commission instead, he teaches disciples that they will win their war with doubt simply by obeying his mission command. Obedience to the will of God is the way to the knowledge of God. The disciples who have just failed Jesus in spectacular fashion, who are doubting as they receive their mission, nonetheless receive the mission. These are the kinds of people Jesus sends. Do they sound familiar? This is Jesus' final claim in Matthew's story. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. N.T. Wright said of this passage, People get very puzzled by the claim that Jesus is already ruling the world. The claim is not that the world is already completely as Jesus intends it to be. The claim is that he is working to take it from where it was under the rule, not only of death, but of corruption, greed, and every kind of wickedness, and to bring it by slow means and quick under the rule of his life-giving love. And how is he doing this? Here's the shock. Through us, his followers. The project only goes forward insofar as Jesus' agents, the people he has commissioned, are taking it forward. The disciples in Matthew's story must confront the outrageousness of such a claim that Jesus has been given all authority in the entire universe, just as the story's readers, you and I, have been made to do for centuries. What is our answer? to such a statement? What is our final decision on the matter, even in the midst of our sailing failure and inexperience and doubt? I can tell you this, if we take Jesus seriously, we will have our work cut out for us. The countermission is alive and well. In his book, After Doubt, Portland professor A.J. Soboda describes a life-changing experience that he had when he visited an African Muslim nation. While there, Swoboda learned that there were 25 known Christians in a city of over a million and that they were facing extreme danger and discomfort, persecution, poverty, just so they could meet secretly at night with one Bible and a broken guitar between them. And Swoboda, who was an American Christian just visiting, he was so thrilled and inspired that he asked if he could meet these radical followers of Jesus. And he was shocked to hear that the African Christians were not interested. The African Christians knew about the enlightened, deconstructed post-Christianity of the affluent white West, and they did not want it to corrupt their movement. Now, at first, he was devastated, but then, ironically, God used the experience to remind him of the enormity of the Jesus movement, and that while our tiny world of deconstruction podcast and pseudo-spiritual intellectuals often makes us feel as if the whole world is bailing out on Jesus, really, we are a tiny corner of that story, And elsewhere in the world, the tiny mustard seed continues to grow into the great vibrant tree that Jesus called the kingdom of God. About his experience, Woboda wrote this, just about every week now, I see another Facebook or Instagram deconstruction confession. One more young, white, progressive Westerner undoing or deconstructing their faith. It used to kill me seeing these, but I have a broader vision now because I've encountered the African Christians and their love for Jesus. For every millennial, affluent, white college student who is choosing to deconstruct their Christian faith, there are five non-white people with less privilege in this world who are finding in the Bible the greatest message one could ever imagine. This is the book and the faith of the poor. This is the book for the lost. This is the book for the hopeless. Maybe Jesus was right when he said that it's nearly impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. God is coming to those who actually need him. So despite any affluence or privilege in my own life, I feel like I need Jesus. I am aware of how often I blow it, how unqualified I feel to participate in this movement. So yeah, it can often feel as if we, as a church, as a community, are also unqualified. We will certainly feel unworthy of this task. It can often feel as if the counter mission is looming, a looming colossus against which our pathetic little church is entirely hopeless. But Jesus has called and anointed unqualified and unworthy disciples. And our tiny view of the world is not the entire story. So you don't know how to do this? Well, the idea is we will learn together. How? Keep showing up. Do not give up on this story. Don't give up on this church. Don't give up on community. Don't give up on the scriptures or on the spirit of God alive in you. Faithfully, week in and week out, show up to your community, to this space. To the scriptures, to God in prayer every day, to the practices of Jesus in your own life. Keep showing up and we'll learn how and we'll give it a shot together. And not just together as in you and me, but together with the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. Those, I think, are pretty good odds Because the best thing about this mission, the best thing about the entire story is in the last little phrase of Matthew's gospel. John Wesley famously said on his deathbed, with his own demise inching ever nearer, he said, apparently, best of all, God is with us, which seems like a weird thing to say. Why not say best of all, Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins or some such thing? I guess because Wesley understood that the only reason that quivering, imperfect, failure disciples can be empowered to change the entire world is because of the presence of God made available to those who do not deserve it. Best of all, God is with us. So, to end his literary masterpiece. Matthew records Jesus speaking over his failed, unqualified, unworthy disciples with the entire world against them. Go and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. And finally, we read the conclusion to Matthew's gospel. And surely, I am with you always. Even to the very end of the age, let's pray together and ask God's Spirit to speak. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancitychurch. You can support Van City financially at vancitychurch/give.